1: Well, I, I want to have a, a special hello to everyone online. Uh, you guys have been faithfully watching, and it's exciting. You've got people like uh, the Ballards are watching. Is this better? Is it worth it? No? But uh, I want to have a special thanks to, or a special hello to... Uh, there we go. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, a special hello to, to Peter Lightfoot, who's out in Nova Scotia. You guys haven't met him. I haven't met him in person but he's been following along, and he's part of our community, so I thought I'd give a special hello to, to Peter. But uh, let me ask you, let's start with a question. Have you have you ever wondered why we spend so much time studying the letters of the New Testament? I mean, those, those letters were written 2,000 years ago. Uh, wouldn't we be better off picking a topic that was, you know, that was maybe relevant to, to your lives, what's going on, how do we deal with technology and mobile phones and, and all those sort of things? Uh, And then we could use the most current scientific research uh, rather than trying to use something that's 2,000 years old and out of date. I mean, it could become a bit of a Christian TED Talk of sorts. Uh, or, Or maybe even you wonder, why do we even bother having a talk on Sunday mornings at all? I mean, is that just a tradition? Is there any value anymore? Can't we just skip it and get to the good part of fellowshipping and hanging out together? Well, the answer, I think, really is is found for us in understanding the beginning of the church. At the very beginning, in Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the church. And what they would do when they first were started and they got together is one of the first things they do, in addition to praying and just sharing fellowship and worshiping together, one of the first things they would do is they would sit under the apostles' teaching. And the reason for that was because the apostles' teaching was helping them to discover what this new covenant was. What did it mean now to be in a relationship with the God of the universe, with Jesus? And, and what, what was the dynamic there? And, and how did that dynamic look? And so they would sit under that teaching. And fortunately for you and I, that's what these scriptures are. The scriptures are a permanent record of the apostles' teaching, particularly in the, the New Testament letters. And so this morning, we're going to begin a new letter. We're going to start a new study on 2 Corinthians. And, and this is a, a great book. It's uh, one commentator said that there's, there's 60 paragraphs in the book, roughly, and there's about 70 or more verses that you could just, you know, dive into and meditate. There's so many rich passages, passages that you've probably seen in social media posts or maybe you've memorized passages. There's a lot of famous passages in this book. And it's hard to narrow down the book to just one simple theme. Like, for example, the book of Philippians, you can, you can say, well, that's a book on joy or, the revelation is the, the, end, the end of the age when Jesus is returning. Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians isn't as simple. There's a few major themes, I would say, but there's not one theme in particular. And so what we see here is Paul talking a lot about dealing with trials, dealing with suffering, and, and what that means, and how really we can discover a good God in the midst of bad times. He actually will spend two whole chapters just talking about money and giving and what that means and what that looks like. Uh, the largest chunk of the book, though, I would say is, is set aside to describing what it means and looks like now to be a minister of the new covenant. And, and please understand, that word minister isn't, isn't relegated just to particular people. It's not just relegated to those who are ordained or pastors. The reality is, who are the ministers of the new covenant? The whole church. We all are. And so now what does that mean? What does that look like to minister life, to minister grace in the new covenant? Paul spends a good chunk of this book going through that. But one of the things that we really discover in this book, I think, is the heart of the apostle, the heart of Paul, and the passion he has in particular for this church in Corinth. But we're going to see him, he's going to be very vulnerable, he's going to be very open, very honest in many different ways in this book. But the next question you might ask is, well, this is a book written 2,000 years ago to a church in Corinth. What does that have to do with you and I? What does, that have to, that, what does that say to you and I? And I, I think the answer is it has a lot to say to you and I, that it still is relevant 2,000 years ago as it is today. And, and the reason for that, I would say, is because people have not change, despite the enormous technological advances in the last 60 years. I mean, think about that. In the last 60 years, what have we begun to experience I mean, gone to the moon, whoa. That was for effect, like, <laughs> I think I'm on the moon now, right? So, so we've been to the moon and back, and computers, and technology, and smartphones, and smart this, and maybe one day we'll get smart husbands, I'm not sure. But I mean, there's all kinds of, of things that, you know, technology has advanced in 60 years, but, but the reality is people haven't changed. What drives people is still the same. People still want to be loved. They still want to know that they belong. They still want to know that they fit in, that they matter. They want to find contentment and peace and, and hope. And, and while the options have changed, obviously, in terms of having some different ways to satisfy those needs, the reality is how we chase and the drive to chase after them hasn't changed. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. Let's, let's consider the city of Corinth. So we'll do a little history lesson here. The, the city of Corinth was, was in the part of the, the, Greek, or the Greek world, right? It was part of the Greek kingdom, I guess. And up until uh, 146 BC, it was sort of the shining light of Greece until it was destroyed in, in 146 BC by a Roman army. And they just utterly desolated, destroyed it. There, no one could live there anymore. And many historians look back on that and say that was the moment that the, the Greek empire, the light was snuffed out. was sort of that was the end of it. It wasn't when they they took out Athens or anything else. It was when they took out Corinth. That was sort of the end of it. And it lay desolate for a whole hundred years until 46 BC when the famous Julius Caesar came along and he decided to rebuild the city. What was unique about rebuilding the city, though, was he didn't send any kind of nobility. He didn't send any kind of rich people to do that. Instead, he just sent normal people, regular people, people who were Roman soldiers that had finished their tour of duty and now were granted citizenship and a parcel of land, or freed slaves, or even some people coming from other parts of the world that were trying to come and and make their way. And so what happens now is you have this city with a bunch of scrappy people. And I say that because there's there's no nobility, there's no money, there's no richness that they have. They're coming on a gamble. Think, Think pioneers, right? the people who went out west for the first time. They had nothing. To, to really lose in some ways, but the, the odds of failure were high. But the reward, if they were successful, was high as well. And so that's what motivated the, the, the people who founded the, the city of Corinth. And, and I think one of the reasons that they were attracted to that, though, was because Corinth had a great advantage. And that advantage was simply its location. So let's take a look at a map. we got a map here that kind of shows the, the larger Mediterranean Sea here. And, and where it says Achia, that's the Roman province that, that Corinth is in. But what you're going to see is you get Jerusalem to the east. You see Ephesus, Thessalonica. You can see Rome where it's on the, the middle shin of the boot. Leave it to an Italian to wear high heels kicking a soccer ball, right? So, um, so you can kind of see where it's located. It's sort of, uh, it ends up being a bit of a gateway now between Rome and, and, the, and the east. So let's zoom in on Achia the there. And, and it doesn't, it's, you can see where Athens is, but right above that second A, so the H-A, right above that, that's where Corinth was located. And what's unique here is you can kind of see you've got the, the northern part of Greece is a, is a kind of a big peninsula sort of idea. And then the southern part of Greece almost is an island. It's almost an island except for a very narrow land bridge that connects the two. And it's on that land bridge that Corinth is located. Now, why that's significant is because if you wanted to travel, if you wanted to send your goods and trades from Rome into the east or backwards, then you had the option. You could go all the way down to the south and around sort of like around the Horn of Africa sort of idea. The problem was that sailors, they found that incredibly dangerous. And so it added time, added danger. So the better solution was just sort of go up through that little uh, little uh, canal and port in, uh, in Corinth, drop your goods off, and they would move it just across that little thin land bridge and onto another boat, and it would go along its way. Or if you wanted to go north-south, you had to go through Corinth as well. So it was very much a choke point. Everyone had to go through Corinth, whether you're going north-south in Greece or whether you're going east-west across the world there. And so it had all kinds of traffic, all kinds of people coming to visit it just in terms of economics. So it was a very wealthy city from that perspective. They also had the the largest games outside the Olympics held there regularly. The Asminian Games, I think is what it was called. And so they loved their sports. They loved their entertainment. And so a lot of tourists would come just to participate in that. And so you had a lot of people coming from that aspect. And then the other thing about Corinth was it had a temple dedicated to the, the, the goddess Aphrodite. And with Aphrodite, the goddess of love, came her prostitutes, her temple prostitutes. And so those temple prostitutes would often come into the city and offer their wares, so to speak, to the people, to the tourists. So you kind of imagine you've got this wealthy city who's, who loves entertainment, loves their sports, and is also driven by the immorality caused by the very sexually crazed culture. Can you think of any other places today that kind of resemble that? That's kind of the West, right? I mean, we're very well off. We love our entertainment, right? We love our sports. We love, you know, the Netflix and, and Disney Plus and the vacations and, the, and travel. And then we are also in a very sexually craved culture. And so really, the reality is, I think, if you and I were to dro- be dropped into Corinth at this time, we would see a lot of similarities. Now, I, I'd miss the indoor plumbing. But other than that, though, I think we would see that there's a lot of similarities within the culture there. And so I think what Paul's saying to Corinth also has a lot to what he wants to say to you and I, even though we're 2,000 years later, we're in a different country, in a different part of the world than here in Canada, but there's a lot that I think uh, God wants to say to us. So let's read the, the first two verses of chapter 1 of Second Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we we begin this journey, as we start to study this great book, this book that our brother Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, to this special church, a church that was meaningful to him, would you help us see how it relates to us today? Because your word is is like honey. It never goes out of style. It never goes out of fashion. It never goes bad. That's what makes truth so powerful and so good. And so I'm looking forward to the the weeks and months ahead of us as we study this book. Would you continue to, to bless our hearts with the knowledge of what it means to experience life in you? In your name we pray, amen. Well, as we noted earlier, the Apostle Paul is the, is the author of this letter, and he's, he's addressed it to the church of God in Corinth. And I, I find that phrase, the, the, the church of God in Corinth, rather than the church in Corinth. And it's almost like a, a subtle reminder that this church, this, the word there is ecclesia, right? It's not a building, it's not a temple, it's not a, an organization or, or some kind of nonprofit you know, incorporated group. That's not what the church is. The church ecclesia is a group of people, literally a group of people who've been called out of the world together. And so this group, this, these people are the church, the ecclesia of God. And so there's this reminder right from the beginning that you and I belong to God. We are his possession. He is the head. We are are in him and under him. We've been purchased by him, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so then he goes on to include also the saints of Achaia. So it's the church of God and the saints of Achaia. And so remember, we saw Achaia is that that Roman province that really Corinth is, is the Uh, The capital city of. So in this case here, he could be saying to to Kitchener or maybe Toronto, the Church of God in Toronto, and the Saints of Ontario, the wider province as well. But I think really what we're going to see is this letter is primarily aimed at the people in Corinth because that's the connection that Paul has. And then in verse 2, Paul says, grace to you and peace. Well, this is this is an incredibly common greeting. Uh, it's really it's found actually in every one of Paul's letters, whether it be at the church or per, personal correspondence. That phrase is found in some ways. The only time it's a little bit different is he, when he speaks to to Timothy. He adds in mercy there, but really it's it's the same grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's Paul's kind of entryway, and and the reality is it's it's not it's a derivation of a very common. Uh, letter opening that would be happening in the day. Uh, think about it, like when, when you and I, did you ever learn how to write letters in school? I, I, did, I learned that in keyboarding class. Remember keyboarding class? I find that kind of funny that there was a, such a thing as keyboarding class. I don't know if there still is such a thing as keyboarding class. So it just seems silly to me that they would have that. But part of that was, was at a, it was brand new. It was like, we had a computer. Right, We just got rid of the, the typewriters at my school because it was a new school. And so we had these computers, but they would teach you now the form of a letter, right? Dear so-and-so, and then the greeting, and then you know how you would end it. And it would change. Is it a business letter? Is it is it a letter to a family member? Is it a letter to a friend? Is it a letter to the government or the editor because you have a complaint to make? That comes in later when you're older, I think, more so when you're younger. But... Um, But I would learn all these letters. And they had something similar 2,000 years ago in the Roman world, where there was a natural opening to it. And you would begin, you would identify yourself. And that's what we see here, Paul, the apostle of, of God. And then he would also include the other people here, Timothy and others that were part of this writing this letter. And then you would identify who you're writing it to, to the Church of God in Corinth. Now, I imagine it's not to inform those people who they are. Hopefully, they know who they are. But it's rather to make sure that you're reading your own mail that this letter is, in fact, addressed to you. So you would introduce yourself. You would introduce who you're writing to. And then often in, in the Roman world, they would just say greetings. Or if you were Jewish, you would say shalom. Well, what Paul's doing is a derivation of those. He's bringing them together. He's changed greetings to grace to you. And he's taken shalom, which is often translated as peace. And he's using the Greek word for peace. And he's kind of combining them together. And I think the reason for that is because the church at this time is, is made up of two predominant groups, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And they were at odds with each other for most of that early part of the church because there's there a conflict there. Should the Gentiles become more Jewish or should the Jewish become more Gentile? And so there is this this pull going between the two of them, this fight going on between the two of them, and that Paul was constantly needing to address. And so by having this greeting of grace to you, which is more for the Gentiles and peace more for the Jews, was sort of bringing them back together to that reminder that, that there's unity here, that we're together, that there's, there's only one spirit. There's only one church. There's only one Lord and one faith and one calling and one baptism. We're one in Jesus. And, and we've talked about it before and how that, that we have all unique differences. Right? That, that some of us like, you know, Fruit Loops and others like cornflakes, and others don't like cereal at all. And, and, and others, they, they worship God with, with more upbeat music and others like more hymns. And, and some like to have these kinds of prayers and some like to do these type of things. We're all unique and different. But what divides us is smaller than what unites us, which is Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings us together. And that's, I think, Paul grounding it right from the beginning. You are the church of God. You belong to God now. And Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. We are one in Jesus. But I think there was more than just a, a normal greeting, just trying to be you know, correct in case his keyboarding teacher ever edited his letter and make sure he got good marks. It was more than just protocol. I think Paul was also trying to communicate and remind right from the beginning of every letter what matters, What's truth? And it's this simple truth here in these two words, grace and peace. So let's, let's start with this word grace. Now, now, words are funny because I think we often think of words as often only having one meaning and therefore one purpose. But the, the reality of that is just not that simple. Words often have multiple meanings and, and multiple uh, definitions, because especially when they're not just an object, but when, rather when they're talking about a concept or ideas. So for example, you, you read a dictionary, as you typically do, I'm sure, on a Thursday night, right? You're looking for something to do. You pull off the old Webster's, crack it open, open up in the letter W, let's begin, right? But if you were to do something like that and open up a dictionary, you would see that every word generally has multiple definitions. It could mean this, it can mean this, it can mean this, it can mean that. And some words it can have a long list of definitions based on how they're used. For example, the word run. The word run has multiple usages, usages based on its context here. And, and so when we come to the word grace, there's multiple definitions to it that, that don't compete with one another, but just give us a larger perspective, a larger understanding of what this word really means. And now we often define grace as being the unmerited favor of God, the, the gift of God, a, a gift that you didn't earn and you didn't deserve and you didn't work for. And, and think about it, that's, that's a massive change between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? In the old covenant, the, you had the law of Moses and it was all about performing. It was all about what did you earn? What did you achieve? What did you acquire based on you and your performance and what you did? Did you measure up to the standards? Did you measure up to the expectations? Did you measure up to the law? If you did, then you earned the blessings. You earned the positive rewards. But if you failed, if you weren't good enough, then you earned something else. You earned the curses. You earned the negative rewards. You earned trouble, essentially. But it was all solely based on your output, what you provide. Thank God we're not under that anymore. Thank God we've been set free from the law, entirely set free from the law, and are now under a brand new system, a brand new operating system called the New Covenant that is operated solely by grace, where God gives you something you do not earn or do not deserve. And so we have a verse like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. So so grace means that we do not do some number of good things in order to earn or deserve God's gift of salvation. Can't earn it. It's a gift from God, a gift that has come at incredible cost. Let's, Let's be clear. Grace is free to you, but it wasn't free. What was the cost of grace? The life and death of Jesus. Right? the sacrifice that he made on the cross that we, we just celebrated again last, last week and over Easter, that was the cost for you and I to have God's grace, which is why they've, they've taken grace and made it into an acrostic. Remember what acrostic is, where, where each letter of the word is, is, is it, creates a sentence? So you have grace, G-R-A-C-E, becomes God's riches at Christ's expense. You and I can experience the blessings, the riches, the the love of God at Christ's expense. He's paying the bill for you and I. So it's free to us at great cost to Jesus. And for a lot of people, that's grace. That's what it is. And they want to move on from that. But thankfully, grace is so much more than that. Grace is is much bigger than just this, this, this relationship or just this unmerited favor that he gives to us. Grace is also a power. It's a strength. And that's because grace, like agape, like love, is actually a person. Grace is the person of Jesus Christ. Let me show it to you in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Who brought salvation to all men? Jesus Christ did. So grace is the person of Jesus. Jesus appeared bringing salvation to all men. Jesus is God's grace. It's his power. It's his strength. And why that's important? Because that power, that life of Jesus, that strength is now, it goes on in verse 12 to say, is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, too often we think of, well, grace is forgiveness for when you screw up. But now it's up to you to not screw up. And that's not what grace is. Grace is, yes, when you screw up, it's there. But grace is also the power to not screw up, the power to not sin. Grace is the power that you and I need to enable us to live the kind of lives that we all want to live, to empower us to overcome sin, to overcome temptation. To love our friends, to love our family, even to love our enemies and those who disagree with us. And the ability to find peace and contentment in the midst of any storm that this world offers to us. And the only person that can do all that, the only person powerful and capable of doing all that is Jesus, who now lives in you and me. And so that's why we talk so much about grace. That's why it's so important, because it's not, just, it's not just a starting point of your Christian experience. It's meant to be the starting, the middle, and the end, and everything else. It's about God's grace. It's about his power that's present in you and I today. Let me maybe illustrate it to you another way. There's a, there's a famous missionary called uh, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary almost 200 years ago now. Uh, from England into China. And one of the things that made him so successful was that he was one of the first missionaries to get beyond just the coast of China, and he got into the the central part of China. And for for many other missionaries to try, but they all failed, and really Hudson Taylor had a simple approach to it. See, all the other missionaries would show up as Englishmen, So you can imagine, they got their three-piece suits and their bowler hats and, and maybe their little walking cane. And they'd show up in China, and they would try and go into the mainland of China. And they would stick out. And they would look odd. And nobody wanted to hang around them. And so Hudson Taylor, the first thing he would tell all his missionaries is, ditch your British garb. Dish your English clothes. Get rid of them. And start to wear what the Chinese people are wearing. Wear their outfits. Wear their clothes. Dress like them in order for them to look at you and say, "Okay, I want to hear more. And just by simply wearing their attire, he earned their their respect to hear from them. And so that's what he did. And so he had an incredible ministry called China Inland Missions that was able to go in and share the gospel. But I think there was another element that made Hudson Saylor so powerful, and that was that he understood the new covenant. He understood that it wasn't going to be about him and his strengths, but about Christ in him. But Hudson Taylor learned that, like a lot of us, the hard way. That he'd been in ministry for a number of years and he was frustrated because he could see what he wanted to do, but he was not doing those things. He was doing the very things he hated. Does that sound like anyone else you know? Right, The Apostle Paul. And so he was struggling and he was frustrated. And, and he came across Galatians 2.20. And he reads this verse and it says that, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he goes, that's it. That's the key. It's gotta be Jesus in me. And he reads John 15 about the vine and the branches and how the, the vine provides the life to the branches. And he says, that's it. That's what I need. I need that power of God to flow through me. But how do I get that power from, from the, the little itty-bitty, or from big Jesus into little itty-bitty me, from the vine into the puny little branch. He goes, I don't know how to do it. And he says, I recognized what I was lacking was faith. And I was striving and struggling after it and trying to improve on it. But everything, every time I strived, every time I struggled, I only failed all the more. Well, then he got a, a letter from his, a dear friend of his. And, and his friend had been on this journey a little bit longer than him. And he started to see what the answer was. And so he wrote to Todson Taylor and he had this simple phrase. He said, how, do you, how does one get faith strengthened? It's not by striving after faith, but resting in the faithful one. Think about it. how often have we, we think, I just need more faith. That was Hudson Taylor. I just need more faith. So I just need to, need to write, read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to you know spend more time in quiet time. I need to do this. I need to do that. And he was striving after trying to increase his faith. But the answer was resting in the faithful one. Because that's what Jesus is inviting us to. Well, I remember reading this, this uh, this journal entry, because really, I guess it was a letter that Hudson Taylor was writing to his sister summarizing what he was learning. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, you could replace faith with any quality of life. Think about it. Anyone, Anyone want peace? Anyone need some peace? Some point in your life? Well, how does one get peace strengthened? Is it striving after peace? No, it's resting in the peaceful one. You see, what we do is when we're striving after peace, I got to be in control, and things need to happen this way, and the kids need to do this, and my spouse needs to do that, and my boss needs to listen to me here, and, and we try to control our world. But the more we try to control it, what happens to the peace? Does it go up or down? It becomes more elusive. But what if we could learn to rest in the peaceful one where he becomes the source of peace, feeling tired, Wishing you could have some more strength. Well, how does one get strength strengthened? Is it by striving after strength? No, it's by resting in this strong one. What about love? How does one get love strengthened? Is it by striving after love? No, no, no. It's resting in the loving one. You see, what, what Paul's trying to say here, even in the simple phrase of grace to you, is a reminder that everything we need for life and godliness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's now the buffet that we go and partake from. He's the one that we now depend on and trust in. And everything you need in this world, you can find in the person of Jesus. That's the grace you and I need for today. That's the strength and the power that you and I need today. So whatever it is you're looking for, acceptance, strength, victory, hope, don't strive after those things rest in the hopeful, victorious, loving, peaceful, good God that is Jesus Christ. Is that making sense? All right, let's look at the other word here that we've got. We've got grace to you, and he also says peace, or the Hebrew would be shalom. And, and we often think about peace as being this state where there's no conflict, right? Right now, there's no peace in, in the Ukraine. There hasn't been peace in the Middle East for ever, right? And so we we think about that peace is that moment where the conflict ends. Like when World War II ended, we now declare we have peace. That's not the kind of peace that that Jesus is talking about because he's talking about something else. The, the, The world defines peace that way, but Jesus says the peace I offer is not like this world. It is the ability to have peace even in the midst of the storm to have peace even in in unpleasant circumstances. And, And the word shalom was even much more than peace. It was meant to be this sense of wholeness and contentment in a prosperous way, not necessarily materially prosperous, because I know a lot of people that are prosperous but not wealthy. And I know a lot of wealthy people that aren't prosperous because it's a state of your soul. It's a state on the inside here. And so that's the peace that is being offered to you and I much more than just a pleasant circumstances. It's a peace despite what's going on around you. And and as an illustration of that, I want to tell you about a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was um, an Austrian Jew when it wasn't good to be an Austrian Jew, meaning he was was alive during the the reign of of Hitler and, and the Nazis, and so he was very quickly imprisoned and then went around in concentration camps. And his, his role before and then even after, because he survives the Holocaust, was as a philosopher and a, and a psychiatrist. And so he ended up writing a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which recounts his journey. Incredible journey. I mean, he, in, he just talks about how horrific the circumstances were and what it was like to live in that place. But what's unique is that In that, he comes to a conclusion about how he was able to have victory to find that peace, even in the worst place you can imagine. In fact, he even says he had more freedom than his captors. That they would come to him looking for help, even though they got to go home to the nice warm bed and their families, and he was stuck with very little food, very little clothing, and lost all his loved ones. And he says the, the, the secret to that was realizing that no matter what they did to my body, they could control that, but they couldn't control my mind. They couldn't control my soul. And, and I believe Victor, he, I believe he had a relationship with Jesus. When you read that book, you start to see that this wasn't just a Jewish thinking. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about, about a, 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 the God that you and I know. And I think it's because he was able to find that peaceful one. He was able to find peace in, the, in literally the worst place on earth that you could imagine because he wasn't a prisoner of them in his soul. He was free. And so that's what you and I have. That's the kind of peace that's being offered to you and I is that this peace that is greater than this world, greater than your circumstances. And having that peace is so critical because it allows us now to make wise choices. Think about it. When your emotions are screaming at you, When you're angry and you're overwhelmed, what are the odds of you making good choices? Not very good, right? And so what's the counsel? What's the advice that we often give people in that moment? Take some time. Let those emotions calm down a little bit. Clear your thinking so that you can see clearly. You can see properly. And that's what peace does. That's what this wholeness does. It allows us to see the bigger picture. You see, when we're lacking that peace, we're looking at everyone around us and we're blaming those people for taking away my peace. It's my kids' fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my friend's fault. If they, if they just did things differently, then I would be OK. And we get fixated on then trying to control everyone. But if you can experience that peace from God, you can take that step back and say, well, wait, wait a minute, what's really going on here? You know, I, I actually see my kids are struggling, and that's why they're acting out. And I can see that my spouse is also struggling, and, and that's why they're angry at me, because I've offended them. And, and my friend's struggling with something that I didn't even see. You know what? Maybe, maybe I can offer some aid to them instead. And so instead of being all put out by what we're experiencing, we can offer love and life to those around us, that grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Aren't those good words, grace and peace? No wonder he used that at the beginning of every single letter. Grace and peace are offered to the church and it's offered from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's coming from. That's the source of it. That's where it's found. That's where it's discovered. You don't go looking for it in a book. You don't go looking for it uh, you know, around the corner. You don't go looking for another person. You find it in God himself. But I think that this grace and peace is offered in an exchange. Think about it, all relationships have an exchange of some sort. Some of them are obvious, right? So for example, you walk into a restaurant, they're going to exchange food for money, right? They're going to give you a service for, for money. So we have those kinds of relationships. But you have an exchange that takes place also within friends and family. And that exchange is really one of community, of trust, of love, that, that the relationship, if it's not two ways, if there's not back and forth, a one-sided relationship isn't a relationship at all. It's a monologue. And so there needs to be a back and forth. And so what, what God offers to you and I is grace and peace. So what is it that we offer to him? What is it that we give back to him? And so as I thought about that this week, I kept thinking about, about Jesus and his disciples and what he would say to them. He's offering this grace. He's offering this peace. He's offering this opportunity. And what does he ask in return? He says, follow me. Follow me. It's an invitation, right? It's an invitation for you and I to experience God's ability. All it requires is our availability. And this invitation is an invitation to live together with him. That's what it was like for these disciples, to learn from Jesus to follow in his ways, to begin to be transformed so that we resemble him. But we don't always follow Jesus, do we? There's there's a bunch of other things that we might be following. Maybe it's our, our political ideology that we're following, be it left or right. Or maybe you've got something else, up or down, I don't know. But we might follow that ideology. That this is what the world should be and this is what we should do and this is how I'm going to now, I'm going to live my life. And so we, we import these rules that the ideology contain. Say this, don't say this, do this, don't do that, believe this, don't believe that. Often we follow our own lusts, our own appetites, be it for entertainment be it for following sports, our hobbies, maybe even sex. It's all about just trying to feel something in the moment, feel good, feel an escape, feel comfort. And so we will sacrifice what we know to be good and true for that in this moment pleasure that sin often offers. Maybe it's power we're following or or money or fame. And if I just make enough money or rise up enough or get get enough followers on social media. Or maybe have your own philosophy. You know, live your own truth and be, you know, live you and live your own life. Or, Or maybe it's even other people in relationships. Where I'm just thinking, as long as I'm as long as I'm next to Christian, then I'll be okay. And then I've got Christians' love and acceptance, and then I'm all right. And so I just need to do whatever I can to keep that flowing to me. Those are often the things that we follow instead of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, "Come, no, no, come follow me. Don't just follow my teachings. Don't just follow my words. Don't just follow my example. He's saying, follow me. It's an invitation to live with him. So when I thought about those disciples, well, what would they do? What was the response? It was to abandon their old ways to abandon what life consisted of and how they were going to find life and how they were going to succeed in life. They had to set all that aside. Those previous goals and dreams were laid aside in order now to follow Jesus. And they began to devote themselves to Jesus and to to live with him and to learn from him and to listen to him and talk with him. Everything that their life was, was wrapped up now in the person of Jesus whom they were following. That's what would often happen between a rabbi and a disciple is that basically they were so close to them that the dust would kick off their sandals onto you, the, onto the disciples. That was this thinking. And that's the invitation that Jesus is offering to you and I. For the early church, I think what it meant was they, they completely changed their perspective on life. Again, they had goals. They had dreams. We're just going to get wealthy, and maybe we're going to have enough to retire, or we're going we're to go on this trip. We're going to experience this, and so they were doing everything they could to go down this path. And then they meet Jesus, and it's like, no, this is this is way more important now. You know that that trip, that adventure, that that new home, that boat. It's fine, but this is what matters now. I remember for me. I was on a trajectory. It was all about cars. I loved cars. I would would draw cars as a kid. I remember trying to design them and figure out how they would work. And then when I went to school, I studied to to go into automotive engineering. When I found out there was a race car team there, that was it. I was done. My whole life was wrapped up in cars and designing them and building them. Until I connected with Jesus and I saw something that I've been always looking for that peace, that hope, that love, that acceptance. And cars don't matter to me anymore. I mean, I, I could identify a car simply by its taillights. Not anymore. It doesn't really bother me anymore. I'm, I'm more interested in Jesus. I'm more interested in what he's up to because I know whatever he's up to, I want to be a part of that. I want to experience that. I want to have the best seat in the house to watch Jesus work. That's following him. Now, does that mean you have to quit your job? No, absolutely not. Because your job is the place he's planted you. Your job, your home, your work, your school, wherever you are, that's where he's got you. He says, I put you there for a reason. And the reason is so that together we can be engaged, whether it be running a daycare with kids, whether it be doing finance. Whatever it is that we're doing, we have the opportunity to experience Jesus and what he's up to. And he's got a far bigger game plan than just what you've previously thought, just your job. And so we get to experience that in trusting him, experiencing that grace to pull it off. Now, I know there might be some objections at this point. People say, well, that sounds good, that sounds wonderful, but but how do I know what he wants me to do? Because I don't, I don't know his voice. I don't hear his voice. I don't recognize his voice. And I can, I can totally get that. I, I, I struggle with that from time to time. But, but when I was younger, I, I, I never heard God's voice. I was, I was really told, actually, that the only time you're going to hear God's voice is when you read the Bible. That's the only way God will communicate to you. So when you're praying, it's just a one-way conversation. What kind of a relationship is that? It's meant to be a two-way conversation where I'm meant to listen maybe even more than i meant to talk to him. But then I have to learn to discern his voice. And what I've, what I've discovered is that God's speaking to me far more than I've ever recognized in the moment. It's only when I look back on it do I realize, oh, he was saying that to me. This is what he was leading. This is how he was communicating. This is how he was encouraging me. I didn't, I didn't recognize it at the time. But as I've grown and as I've matured, I've begun to tune into the sound of his voice. And some of that's come by reading scriptures. So now I understand God's ways and I understand his character so that when he speaks to me and he'll bring a verse to my mind, I'll go, oh, I know who that is that is. That's God. And that's something we develop. And that's, that's beautiful. Because think about any relationship. Any relationship doesn't just start out that way. I mean, I, I know Joy today way better than I did when I first met her because of all the years we put into developing that relationship. So now that I understand her, her, her voice and her wants, and I, mean, I can call her up and just by hearing her saying hello, I know what kind of a day she's had because I've tuned myself into her voice. And that's what we're doing and will continue to do with the voice of Jesus. So give yourself grace. Give yourself permission to learn that. And maybe if you're wanting to, to figure out, well, how, do I, how can I experience that even more, then I would encourage you, just open up his word. Read more of that word, not to get brownie points, not to impress him, but just so that you can begin to discover more about his ways. So that's one objection I hear from people. But here's the other objection I hear from a lot of people. is again, that sounds great, sounds really, really wonderful, but I'm too broken. I'm too hurt. I can't. I can't do that. I'm. I'm not good enough for that. This has happened. This has happened. It's been happened to me, or I did it, and therefore I've disqualified myself. And I got good words for you today. Jesus is bigger than all that. Jesus can use any one of us. He can speak through any one of us. He can. I mean, think about it. God spoke through Balaam's donkey, did He not? Right. So he there's another word for that that's actually in the King James, I believe, but we won't do that. But but if he can speak through a donkey thousands of years ago, you know, he's still speaking through those kind of animals today. (laughs) He can speak through any one of us. And maybe maybe there's some time where healing needs to take place. Maybe there's some time where where we need to have that encouragement and we need to discover what God's done and who we really are and we need to discover the lies that have kept us in bondage. And so maybe there's that time of healing that God wants to do where you could experience his grace and his peace in new and exciting ways. But please understand that he will use anyone and everyone. All he's waiting for you and I is to take him up on his invitation he says, come follow me. Come follow me. Watch, watch what we're going to do together. It's going to be great. It's going to be incredible. And I'm going to provide to you the grace that you need, the power, the strength, and the peace, because I'm the source of that. Just trust me and follow me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done to make all this possible that you've done everything possible for us to be in this relationship with you. You've done everything possible that we could experience this grace to experience this peace. All that awaits is for us to actually take you up on the offer, to trust you in this moment. And that's all that we can control is just this moment of trusting you. And so I pray as we, we go from here today and we ponder what you've been speaking to us about, we would trust you. We would take that chance and experience the grace that you're offering to us in this moment. Experience the peace that you're offering to us in this moment. Grace and peace that came at great cost through what, your Jesus, what our Jesus has done for us. The cost that he was more than happy to pay because of the great love that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen.